Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. believe the Holocaust happened, that six million Jews were slaughtered? Look, historical events should be investigated by researchers and historians. There are some signs that it happened. If so, they should allow it to be investigated and researched. So you're not sure? I'm getting that. You're not sure. What about Israel's right to exist? You see, the people of Palestine are the reality. This is the right of the people of Palestine who are forced to leave their houses and motherland. The Americans are supporting this false regime there to take root and be established there. Summer was going so well for the president, the White House threw a party last week with a concert by James Taylor. Mr. Biden's streak began in June when he signed a bipartisan gun safety law. Then, in August, over Republican objections, he signed the largest investment ever on climate change, a minimum tax on corporations, a law to lower prescription drug prices, and student loan forgiveness. But Tuesday, as James Taylor sang Fire and Rain, it seemed like both descended on the president's party. The Dow plummeted nearly 1,300 points after a dismal inflation report. President, first Detroit auto show in three years. Yeah. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's But the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it. And a difficult life for the president. In 1972, he lost his wife and daughter in a car accident. He lost his son, Beau, to cancer in 2015 at the age of 46. And his son, Hunter, has been a lightning rod for suspicion. Hunter Biden's former addiction to crack cocaine led to a life he describes as nonstop depravity. He has also acknowledged a federal investigation into his taxes. Congress investigated Hunter Biden's job with a Ukrainian company at the time that his father ran Ukrainian policy in the Obama administration. A Republican investigation, however, uncovered no wrongdoing by then Vice President Biden. Mr. President, if you run again, Republicans are most likely to go after your son Hunter once again. And I wonder what you would like to say about your son and whether any of his troubles have caused conflicts for you or for the United States. I love my son, number one. He fought an uh, addiction problem. He overcame it. He wrote about it. 
And no, there's not a single thing that I've observed at all from that would affect me or the United States relative to my son, Hunter. Joe Biden is among the longest serving politicians in Washington. If there is less bounce in the step than there once was, if the words don't flow like they used to, maybe there's something to be said for know-how. Five decades on the Hill and in the Oval. You have lived a long life of triumph and tragedy. In November, you'll be 80. And I wonder what it is that keeps you in the arena. Well, look, um, I've had tragedies. I've lost part of my soul and I lost my son, Bo, and I lost my wife and my daughter in an accident. I think of all the people who've gone through what I've gone through and a lot more without what I had. I had an incredibly supportive family. There's so many literally heroes getting up every day, putting one foot in front of another with no help. I constantly think, what would Bo want me to do? What would Bo want me? And you know, this gets me a long way. So you're in an interesting position. For a long time, America had an agreed idea of what was happening on the news, for the most part. Supposed to, yeah. Right. Cable news came, and then it became, you know, really partisan. You could have it this way, and you could have it that way, and your facts could almost be a la carte now. You still occupy a position... Trying to, you know, yes. Yeah, but you still occupy this position where most people think of it as, okay, this is the, the middle, this is... But the Overton window of middle is shifting. How do you now respond? Do, do you try and do you have to cater to, to some of these here, politicians? Here, here's, here's what you don't do. I mean, I think there is a risk when you're talking to certain uh, politicians if, if you're willing to say what you're saying is not true. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to risk looking partisan by doing that. But I think we can't bow to that threat. Mm. I mean, it, as long as, as I'm confident when I am that we're arguing about facts, undisputable facts, I have no problem saying you're not telling the truth, even if that's going to cause somebody to say, oh, you know, you're just being a, a political hack. You have to do that. That's what we have to stand up for as journalists, right and wrong, fact. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. Not only do MAGA Republicans not respect the Constitution, but for years, some mainstream Republicans have been pushing to change it with a second constitutional convention. As written in Article 5, only 34 states need to support a call for a convention. So far, at least 19 states have officially signed on. But a constitutional convention is a threat to democracy that is closer to reality than you think. Joining me now is president of Common Cause and the Common Cause Education Fund, Karen Hobart Flynn. Karen, it is great to see you again. Thank you for coming to the Sunday show. You were the first one to bring this to my attention about four <laughs> years ago. Today, and you blew, you, you scared the hell out of me. Today, former Democratic Senator Russ Feingold has a forthcoming book about the dangers of a constitutional convention. What's the key danger? The key danger is that first, um, it could put all of our constitutional rights up for grabs. They're, the right is doing this under the radar and we need to pay, pay attention because the risks are profound. Because when you and I talked about this before, the thing that blew my mind was, while there are rules 
that you have to follow to call the convention. Once the convention is called, and you know, folks have been saying for years, we need to have a constitutional convention to add in a, uh, a balanced budget amendment. So you could use that as the reason for calling the convention, but once the convention is called, as you said, all of our rights are then on the table. The, the, the one thing, Karen, that folks need to understand is any rights that have been granted under the Constitution, even as an amendment, such as granting full U.S. citizenship to the former slaves, would be up for grabs in a constitutional convention. And with the way folks are acting right now, I wouldn't put it past them. You know, Major, I want to start with you because in those, just literally the first page of the book, you use the phrase American Civil War. Mm -hmm. um, you go on to write that in the upcoming election in November and in 2024, trust itself is going to be tested. Democracy no longer suffers from a lack of participatory energy. It suffers from a lack of respect allegiance, knowledge, humanity, and most of all, trust. How dangerous is the moment that we are in? It feels more dangerous, Margaret, than any I've encountered in covering politics at the national level since 1990. Stating what clearly happened in 2020, it wasn't a fraudulent election, no crime was committed. That doesn't mean you have to be happy with the result, but one of the burdens of democracy is when you're unhappy with the result, your obligation is to win the next election not slander baselessly the election you fairly lost. Mm -hmm. And we have a component of American politics now that wants to slander an election that was fairly lost because they're unhappy. And that unhappiness does not entitle you to drag down American democracy because if, Margaret, we enter a phase in American life where either political party refuses to accept a fair and verified election simply because it lost, then we will dismantle democracy bit by bit before our very eyes. And welcome back to Flower Politic Podcast. It is the 20th of September, year of our Lord, 2022, episode 626. It's going to be a hobbly, bobbly show today. I'm going to do things a little differently because I literally ran into things. And I'm going to flip the show. So we're going to do trans up front. And then we're going to go into immigration. That's our sole subject today. little hit, hit on the side. I wanted to start, though, with those great intros because that is how they treat... A terrorist state and they treat our president to no hard questions let him say what the fuck he wants and then we build up to people saying there's going to be a civil war major garrett used to be a normal guy on fox but you could tell he wasn't a normal guy but i was planning on going to screed about that and then i ran into it i'm a geek i love space shows I love Quantum Leap. You can judge me. I love it. Of course, I didn't watch it when it was on because I was in the Army. I was a little busy. Didn't have a whole lot of quality time for just binging a show that nobody else is going to watch in the house. And we didn't have DVRs. So I got into Quantum Leap. And then I ran into it being a reboot because I still watch it. I tape it. I've watched every episode a dozen times. I think it's a great show. And the funny thing is, is I watch it and then I watch Tucker Carlson from last night. And it, it just, light bulb. My God. It's worse than I ever thought it was going to be. So I'm going to play a soundbite, our usual, with some weird people. The quantum leaf bump, and then you're going to see Tucker Carlson rant for a while, but I think it's important 
And then Bill Maher talk about wokeness. And we shall discuss. Hey, Blue, look at all these families. Hi, families. It's time for a pride parade. Families marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah. Families marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah. This family has two mommies. They love each other so proudly. And they all go marching in the big Okay, so, hi. Um, there is a lot of pushback and like barring of people getting hysterectomies. This isn't something that I'm fully aware of. I know a lot of cis women who have wanted to get hysterectomies and their doctors like straight up refuse to give them hysterectomies. My situation is different because I am a trans man. So me getting a hysterectomy falls under a gender affirming surgery. I am fortunate that my healthcare provider has a gender clinic and has really good gender affirming care services. So I didn't have to convince my doctor to let me have a hysterectomy because for me, it's a gender affirming thing. It falls under gender. It's not in relation to like, it is in relation personally to me for um, like, uh, reproductive health care because I'm getting it taken out of me because I do not want to have babies. Um, but also it is gender affirming care because I am a trans man. So that is why I was able to e more easily be approved for a hysterectomy. I didn't have to fight it as much as people who are not like trans men have to fight it. This doesn't mean that it is easy for trans men to get hysterectomies. I'm just fortunately living in a state and with a healthcare provider that makes it easier. Yes. I have had multiple students come out to me, not just with their sexuality, but also with their gender identity. It's one of the reasons I think it's so important to be out and loud and proud so that people feel comfortable coming to me and talking to me because I don't know how much different my life would have been if I had had somebody to come talk to about this kind of stuff. My hope is that every student will have somebody that they can talk to about this. slower explanation now your name is dr ben song you're from the year 2022 you are the lead physicist on a top secret project called quantum leap you're a time traveler i'm addison augustine we're we work together obviously i time travel into other people so beam me up it's not that simple 
You leap into people to help them or someone around them. Changing history for the better. No matter what happens, ben, look out! I am going to be with you every step of the way until we get you home. Ben knew that the technology wasn't ready. Can you hear me? Why did he leap? Find out what he's there to do and bring him home. If you fail, there is a 100% chance that this ship will crash. Just out of curiosity, if the person I leap into dies, you die too. Right. Good to know. Wait a second, there must be a misunderstanding, okay? Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. If you're used to thinking of Canada as our slightly dorky Arctic cousin, literally the last nation on earth where the mullet is considered a legitimate haircut, the country where American fads go to die, and of course you're used to thinking all of that about Canada because it's long been true, it's time to think again. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Canada, of all places, is a leading indicator. As the woke revolution spreads across the West, Canada is at the vanguard of it. Under Justin Trudeau, Canada has done everything to the maximum possible extent. It has criminalized political speech. It has banned self-defense. It's used the power of the state to squelch Christianity, all of it. So if you want to know what's going to happen next in the United States, it's time to look north. Canada is the ghost of our Christmas future. So with that in mind, it's worth taking a look at what is happening right now in Canada's schools, because you are certain to see all of it in your children's schools very soon. So this week, videos surfaced on the internet from a place called Trafalgar High School in Oakville, Ontario. That's right across the lake from Niagara Falls. These videos show a teacher called Stephen Hanna, who apparently has been employed at Trafalgar High for several years. Recently, Hanna decided to dress like a woman, or more precisely, as a grotesque caricature of a woman, not a real woman, but a kind of pneumatically Monroe lookalike. As part of his costume, Hanna strapped on a pair of gigantic prosthetic breasts each the size of a 10-pound watermelon. We're not exaggerating here. They're visible from at least 100 yards away, if not from space. We'll show you the picture we are right now on the screen. But here's the thing. Hannah isn't doing this in private, in his home, in restaurants, and clubs. If he were, we would not be mentioning on the show because it would not be our business. Have fun, Stephen Hannah. No. Stephen Hannah is doing it in class, in front of children. As the Canadian journalist Jonathan Kay put it, Hannah has been dressing like this for a while, but only recently have students within the school gone public with this fact. So they've been enduring this for a while. Kay also notes that Hannah's costume is based on the style of Japanese internet pornography, which translates roughly into English as exploding milk porn. So what's going on here? We well, you know exactly what's going on here. Let's stop pretending. Women may not see it right away because generally their lives are not defined by their sex drives. But if you're a man, you get it instantly. What is this about? It's about sex. Stephen Hanna is enlisting other people's children in his sexual fantasies. That's why he's doing this in class. Having an audience of children gives Stephen Hanna a sexual charge. He's getting off on this. There's no question about it. This is the guy in the van trying to give your sixth grader candy. This is the flasher in the park. This guy is a pervert. He should not be within 500 yards of children, period. He's a threat to children. Now, there have always been threats to children. In every society, there are people like this. And every society deals with them swiftly and very harshly, but no longer in the West. Now, people like this are not punished. 
They are celebrated and then protected. Trafalgar High School, which is public, it's funded by Canadian taxpayers, is vigorously defending his behavior and threatening anyone who notices. So is the Halton District School Board, which oversees the school. They just sent us the statement and we're quoting. The school board recognizes the rights of the parents, staff, students, guardians, community members to equitable treatment without discrimination based upon gender identity and gender expression. Gender identity and gender expression are protected grounds under the Ontario Human Rights Code. Oh, the Human Rights Code. Really? Where are the rights of the kids? There are none. In other words, if you complain, if you're a parent who complains about Stephen Hanna enlisting your children in his sexual fantasies, you are the criminal. You are breaking Canadian law. For the most part, the Canadian media, the most supine media that speaks English, are siding with Stephen Hanna, the sicko. Other than the noble exceptions of Jonathan Kay, who we just quoted, and a small feminist blog called Redux, nobody is covering what Stephen Hanna is doing to kids sexually. The rest are effectively defending it. The Toronto Sun, for example, went with this headline. School board prepares for backlash over trans high school teacher. Oh, backlash. Trans high school teacher. He's protected. No, he's a freaking weirdo wagging fake breasts in the face of your children because it titillates him. And if you complain about that, you're the problem. So the problem is parents, not the pervert in the classroom. It's hard to believe this is happening, but we're sad to tell you it's not just happening in Canada. You see versions of it everywhere, including in this country. And to be clear what this is, children being used as props in the sexual fantasies of adults. Children being used as props in the sexual fantasies of adults. Are you okay with that? Is any normal person okay with that? It's completely wrong. It's utterly outside the bounds of what's acceptable. It's not a close call. And yet suddenly teachers, licensed teachers, are bragging about it on social media. I have had multiple students come out to me, not just with their sexuality, but also with their gender identity. It's one of the reasons I think it's so important to be out and loud and proud. I teach my elementary school students about gender identity. Some people are girls, some are boys, some are both, some are neither. I might tell this kid, we do have a flag in the class that you can pledge your allegiance to. And he like looks around and he goes, oh, that one? <laughs> so again, if you were walking through the park with your kids, and a stranger came up and started talking to them, say to your fifth grader, your five-year-old, or even your 14-year-old about sex, what would you do? Well, you would call the police, of course. That's not allowed. It's a crime because they're children. But teachers are allowed to do it and then to brag about it. And it's not stopping with classroom instruction. All over the country, adults are forcing children to attend drag shows. Watch. <laughs> be clear as if it's not clear and somehow we're in such a haze that it isn't clear to a lot of people these are sexual fantasies playing out in public and on one hand we've all sort of agreed that's fine go do your thing but you are not allowed to bring children into your sexual fantasies because that's a species of child molestation you can be fully clothed when it happens it doesn't make it any less abusive or any less immoral they're children Keep children away from your sex life, comma, sicko. There was never any question about that. But now there is. And it's a bit of a tip-off that the same people conducting it 
are now trying to tell you that you can't use the word pedophile. Huh, wonder why, watch this. Want to talk about minor attracted persons because they are probably the most vilified population of folks in our culture. You may have noticed that I'm using the term minor attracted persons, sometimes abbreviated to MAPS, instead of the more commonly used term pedophile. MAP advocacy groups like Before You Act um, have advocated for use of the term MAP. Um, they've advocated for it primarily because it's less stigmatizing than other terms like pedophile. Uh, a lot of people, when they hear the term pedophile, they automatically assume that it means a sex offender. Uh, and that isn't true, and it leads to a lot of misconceptions about attractions toward minors. That last clip was from the Protasia Foundation, which you think federal law enforcement was taking a very close look at, and its donors. Child molestation is a crime for a reason. It destroys people. You can't use children as sexual objects. Now, the first woman you heard from, Alan Walker, worked at Old Dominion University in Virginia. She was fired after the video came out. But shortly after, Johns Hopkins hired her as a postdoc. So she got promoted. She was rewarded for making excuses for child molestation. Hmm. And it's not just academics. You see book publishers aggressively trying to sexualize children. Have you taken a look at young adult books recently? Most are just stupid. Some are flat out pornographic. In Fairfax, Virginia last year, a mother informed her school board that two books in the school's library, one called Gender Queer, another called Lawn Boy, written for seventh graders, contained material that you don't need to be approved to think, wow, this is not, <laughs> something's going on here. According to ABC News, the book Gender Queer, quote, contains explicit illustrations of oral sex and masturbation. The novel Lawn Boy contains graphic depictions of sex between men and children. So why are they pushing this on kids? Well, of course, to prime them for sexual exploitation. And anyone who said that's a puritanical take on this, you're being hysterical, get real, get real. What's the point of pushing pornography on children except to sexualize them and take advantage of them? And they're telling us it's not really child molestation? By the way, everyone in charge seems to be fully behind this. Oh, it's so dark. And then, of course, there's the medical angle. At Boston Children's Hospital, they're cutting the breasts off of healthy children. According to a paper published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine, Boston's Children's Hospital did, we're quoting, 177 gender-affirming double mastectomy surgeries in recent years. Roughly half of them were on girls, 15 to 18. Similar gender-affirming treatments, specifically chemical castration, were offered for many years in Britain, we're not the first to do this, at their infamous Tavistock Child Identity Clinic. Now, Britain's government just announced it is closing Tavistock. Why? Because they've been sued by more than a thousand families who allege that, quote, children and young adolescents were rushed into treatment and therefore, quote, suffered life-changing and in some cases irreversible effects. They should have known that. The data have been out for a long time, but people with a sexual agenda, not a political agenda, a sexual agenda, have pushed so hard to make this legal and then fashionable that we've ignored it. But the numbers have been there. In 2011, researchers in Sweden were results of a study that lasted three decades. That study found that people who underwent, quote, gender-affirming surgery were 19 times more likely to kill themselves than people who hadn't, the general population. So instead of covering all this, that's not a story, really? Sexualizing children, mutilating their genitals? 
because you get off on it? Our media is not covering this at all. They're encouraging it and they're hiding the reality behind euphemisms. They're referring to castration as, quote, gender affirming care. Castration of children. Gender affirming mental and medical care for minors. Often provide gender affirming care to transgender people. And gender, gender affirming care. Seeking to ban gender affirming medical care for transgender youth. Efforts to restrict access to gender-affirming care. Life-saving gender-affirming care for transgender people. Life-saving gender-affirming care. Really, can you slow down a little bit and tell me what exactly that entails? Can you be a lot more specific? Can you bring pictures in? Show me what it looks like. Can you do that? What exactly are teachers talking to my kids about? What's a human sexuality lecture look like in my sixth graders class? Why don't you tell me? Speak slowly so I can take notes. The reality of all this behind the euphemism is horrifying. It's sexualizing children. And they go completely hysterical when you point that out because it's true. And the real question is, why is everyone else putting up with this? In a healthy country with an intact social fabric, neighborhood dads would mete out instant justice to anyone who even thought about sexualizing their kids. And if you doubt that, go ahead and try it in Bulgaria or South Africa or the Solomon Islands. Good luck. Let us know how that ends if you can still speak. People won't put up with it because the instinct to protect your children is the deepest of all human instincts and it has to be. Of course, it has to be. But it's been all but eliminated in the West. Parents in this country and in Canada are far more passive. Why? Because they haven't recognized this phenomenon for what it is. They believe it's some kind of political movement, somehow related to the liberation struggle for trans rights and therefore something you're not allowed to complain about or you're a bigot and all the moms think you're bad. But it's not a liberation struggle. There is no liberation struggle. The battle for trans rights is long over. Trans people have rights. They can dress any way they like. And not only is that entirely legal, most Americans have no interest whatsoever in interfering with it at all. This is a fundamentally live and let live country. And it always has been. That's the deal we've always had. You do your thing, I'll do mine, and we'll both leave one another alone. And the overwhelming majority of the American population still favors that. Republican, Democrat, Independent, everybody's for that. But that's not what this is at all. These are not people who want to leave you alone or your kids alone. These are weirdos getting creepy with other people's children. That's exactly what it is. Say it. Say it. That's what it is. Now, naturally, Joe Biden, who showered with his own daughter, who said her sex life was destroyed by it, is now the lead spokesman for this lunacy. And we're committed to advancing transgender equality in the classroom, on the playing field, at work, in our military, in our housing and healthcare systems, everywhere, simply everywhere. Today, we're announcing even more steps, but there's always more work to do to end the epidemic of violence against transgender women of color and girls of color, to ensure transgender seniors can age with dignity, dignity, to parents of transgender children, affirming your child's identity is one of the most powerful things you can do to keep them safe and healthy. Oh, yeah. Tell us more about how to keep your children safe and healthy, Joe Biden, Mr. Shower with his daughter guy. Are you joking? These are sex crimes, and the people committing them should be punished. Now, try and say that out loud anywhere but on Fox News. You can't. Why can't you? Because it's true. That's why. You can't say the true things. You can claim the earth is flat and no one gets exercise. But when you start saying things like, 
all lives matter or sexualizing my children is a crime. And if you keep it up, I'm going to hurt you because I'm the dad. Say that. Ooh, you're done. Libs of TikTok is being banned from the Internet. Why? Because it showed documentary evidence of what was happening. Some people describe what was happening as grooming. We're not exactly sure what that means, but if it's sexually abusing children, yeah, that is what's happening. But the term groomer is now hate speech, says NBC News. A couple of months ago, the, these people, um, one is Libs of TikTok, another is Matt Walsh, uh, you have Chris Rufo, who you just mentioned. They've been villainizing and literally demonizing these doctors who treat these people for months now. And so in that time, you can just see it in their mentions, this, this sicko language. I've seen it a million times over because every time they tweet about these doctors, using these doctors' faces sometimes, and they'll, they'll, the, all of the, the comments are like sickos, demonic, satanic, pedophile, groomer. Yeah, they're being mean to doctors who castrate children, who cut the breasts off girls. Yeah. This is not only happening, it is being celebrated and aggressively defended by virtually everyone with power. It takes three steps back. We used to say, oh, our society doesn't care about children. That's not what this is. What you're seeing is a society that hates children. You would have to hate children in order to sexualize them because sexualizing children screws them up for life. Ask anyone to whom it's happened, period. No one should put up with this. No parent should put up with this for one second, no matter what the law says, your duty your moral duty is to defend your children. This is an attack on your children, and you should fight back. Well, things are going pretty great in New York. On Friday, a man was caught on tape terrorizing a McDonald's in the city with an axe. No big deal. You won't believe what happened next, though. Our crime correspondent, Jason Rance, has that story for us this evening. Hey, Jason. Hey, Tucker, I guess it was just your typical early morning in New York where a hatchet-wielding man goes on a rampage at a McDonald's in Manhattan. Now, the viral video from this past Friday morning is terrifying. It shows a 31-year-old named Michael Palacios, and he appears to instigate a fight after a witness says a woman had rejected one of his advances. It ends up devolving into some kind of verbal sparring with a few guys. One of them looks to be the woman's friend. And before you know it, Palacios throws the first punch. The men react. A fight ensues, and then Palacio, he reaches into his backpack and pulls out a hatchet. Watch this. Bro, So at one point, you see him threatening a woman with the hatchet, possibly the one who rejected him. And what's so striking is that this kind of incident, I guess, happens enough that people don't actually run away screaming. They just kind of watch this and film it like it's a typical day. Now, luckily, no serious injuries, but also no serious consequences. Police arrested him around 3 p.m. They found a hatchet, but also a knife in his bag. He now faces multiple charges, including criminal mischief and criminal possession of a woman. But thanks to bail reform laws, he was released without bail about a couple hours later. Back in 2020, New York Democrats pretended that cash bail was racist, so they changed what qualifies for bail. And none of the charges against Palacios actually qualify, so he just walked. And by the way, this movement on bail reform isn't staying in New York. As you pointed out last week, Illinois Democrats passed a bill that ends cash bail for most criminal suspects, including those charged with murder, too. Now, that goes into effect on January 1st. I think we can probably predict how that's going to end. Unbelievable. I just wanted fries, but I got a hatchet, too.
McDonald's in New York City. Jason Rance, great to see Super you tonight. Thank you for that. Super Thanks, Unbelievable. Well, whistleblowers from within the FBI are coming forward with stunning new information on how the Bureau, under the direction of Joe Biden, is handling January 6th cases. We thought it was bad. It's much worse. We've got exclusive details, which have not been released before tonight. So we're going to tell them to you for the first time next. So during his famous red speech a couple of weeks ago, Joe Biden labeled his political opponents domestic extremists, terrorists who threaten the existence of our nation. Now, you may have written off that claim as the rantings of a doddering old fool, but this is the president of the United States was the full mechanics of the largest bureaucracy in the history of the world behind him. So now the FBI is working hard to bolster those false claims. It's opened domestic terrorism investigations all over the country, most of them against innocent people. Now we have proof that many of these investigations are entirely fraudulent. They're political. This is so wrong. It should not be happening. Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio just sent a letter to the FBI director, Christopher Wray, who should be ashamed of himself, outlining the evidence. The evidence comes from a whistleblower within the FBI. According to that whistleblower, the FBI is breaking its own procedures to create the illusion that new domestic extremism cases are popping up all over the United States. In reality, virtually all of these cases are about January 6th, which was a nonviolent election justice protest and covered, of course, by the Constitution of the United States, excluding the people who committed vandalism. But you have a right to assemble if you want. So the FBI's Washington office is overseeing these investigations, these domestic extremist investigations. The whistleblower said that, quote, the manipulative case file practice creates false and misleading crime statistics. Instead of hundreds of investigations stemming from a single black swan incident at the Capitol, January 6th, FBI and DOJ officials point to significant increases in domestic extremism and terrorism around the United States. So they're lying with numbers, just like they did under Corona. This is fraud. And now it's occupying a huge percentage of the FBI's time. At the very moment, we just had 2 million people whose identities we can't verify waltz into our country. Now, the whistleblower says he was told that, quote, child sexual abuse material investigations were no longer an FBI priority and should be referred to local law enforcement agencies. Oh, Jermaine, to the last subject we addressed in the open tonight, you'll notice they're downplaying the importance of child sex crimes. Interesting. So we reached out to the FBI for comment and a spokesman told us, quote, the threat posed by domestic violent extremists is persistent, evolving and deadly. End quote. Of course. Being woke is like a magic moral time machine where you judge everybody against what you imagine you would have done in 1066 and you always win. <laughs> Presentism. Yeah, this professor is right. It's just a way to congratulate yourself about being better than George Washington because you have a gay friend and he didn't. <laughs> but... But if he was alive today, he would too. And if you weren't alive, if you were alive then, you wouldn't. Portland Public Schools has a plan now to teach kids that the idea of gender being mainly binary was brought here by white colonizers. The curriculum guide says, when the United States was colonized by white settlers, their views around gender were forced upon the people already living here. <gasps> Not even Star Trek would try that story. <laughs> where they discover a planet and give them separate bathrooms. 
It's like they finally discovered a unified theory of wokeness, incorporating all their ideas about race, gay, gender, and colonizers, like the New World was a great big diverse dance club and the Pilgrims were the bridge and tunnel crowd who came in and ruined everything. <laughs> There's a play called I, Joan, currently being presented in London, written by Charlie Josephine, who identifies as non-binary and uses they, them pronouns. And it portrays Joan of Arc as, surprise, non-binary with they, them pronouns. <laughs> Which, if you think about it, makes even less sense because Joan, being French, spoke a language where every noun is masculine or feminine. <laughs> Joan says in the play, I'm not a girl. I don't fit that word. This is what I ran into when I wanted to watch Quantum Leap. It's a sci-fi show, so it should make sense if we got freaks on it, but this is Mason Alexander Park. He goes by they. He's a he, but he dressed non-binary or something. And he's a horrible actor. Right off the bat, I go to Twitter, and that's the first thing I see. Somebody's just like, why do you have to push this agenda? I'm still going to watch a show, but it's bullshit. And then I got attacked all morning, and I'm not even reading him anymore. But I am a need to get with the times and all this stuff. And even though my tweets all say, hey, listen, um... I don't give a fuck if, parent, you know, if adults do this shit, but we're talking kids. And 20% of girls are fucking doing this because they want attention. 80% of all of them go back to their original gender. But by the time they get there, they've had double mastectomies and they took blockers that are not reversible, folks. That's just a bullshit lie. And there's so many cases of big business getting into it now. And... School districts forcing it. And parents not being able to make decisions for the children. Because we have people behind podiums with the seal of the President of the United States saying the most important thing you could do is massacre your child's anatomy so they feel better about themselves. Who gives a fuck are there three? Which got me to Tucker, which got me there. But this was going around. Really, that's what it's about. The saddest thing about this is if you see all these videos and you look at these people, they have a horrible mental illness. And because the woke use this as a tool to get in and get your kids to think woke and become little tiny activists, their terminology, not mine. So the vote Democrat, you are fucking unable to discern that really it's people need kids to feel good about themselves. That's the whole thing. You know, I turned my sister off last night. She's probably not very happy with me because she had recommended the Holocaust, the U.S. and the Holocaust. So I tuned into it, and I don't mean this to sound like, you know, every other fucking conservative or liberal, excuse me, and say, you know, hey, but... The beginning of the Nazi regime sounds so much to what we're doing with woke. No, I don't mean they're taking people and segregating them and all that kind of shit. But technically, they are in digital form. Technically, they are at your work. It goes back to that statement a couple podcasts ago. Colonialism now is wokeism. It is forcing you to live a way that they choose... And if you don't, there's consequences. You lose your job or you lose your ability to speak on social media. 
and all of it, no opposing views. It was very similar to the revolution we're going through now. I've said it a million times. I do not think people really wanted to go zig heil. Nobody really wanted to do that, but you did it to get along. You get along, you don't get fucked with, they don't come to your house, you ain't got the Gestapo fucking with you. We all do that now. They're talking about the submerged voter. It used to be, I don't remember the terminology, where people couldn't answer Trump. Now it's submerged. We don't answer anything. So when you go and you vote, the polls are never right. I mean, really, how many of you want to go out there and say, I'm against abortion? In our society, you, you can't do that. I'm against uh, American Accountability Foundation finding out that this place is little in the future, hopefully more patients and that younger ages will be referred to affirming providers so that medical options such as pubertal suppression. How many out there want to go to your kid's store? That's the door. At a school. This is a... A middle school in Anchorage, fucking Alaska. We don't want to say, no, I don't want that, because you're automatically labeled a bigot. It used to be back in the day, real people didn't want their kids with black people. That is bigoted. Nowadays, you're a bigot if you don't want your kids brainwashed to believe that they can just pick their fucking gender. And that entails that we need to go give them fucking medical care. And sterilize them. This Akron thing, I, I got a local news soundbite. Frank, we're talking about medical treatment, education, and supportive care. That center is new to this building here at Akron Children's Hospital, and it's the first of its kind in the city of Akron. When I was younger, uh, transgender wasn't really a thing we talked about. Julianne Boylan is a transgender woman who's happy to hear about the new Center for Gender Affirming Medicine in the Adolescent Medicine Department at Akron Children's Hospital. Julianne repressed her true identity for years and says something like the center could have made a huge difference. This is a big difference maker because children now can go in, they have some time to think about what they, where they're at, uh, to examine where they're at. Akron Children's doctors, along with a nurse, social worker, mental health therapist, and an endocrinologist, are seeing patients as young as seven, as old as 25. We're a supportive, affirming space, both for the patient and for the family. The hospital does not do sex reassignment surgeries, but it does offer pubertal suppression treatment. Pubertal suppression buys time. So what it does, it sort of holds back development. The center stressed other services offered to the LGBTQ community include education, supportive care for youth and their families, and gender-affirming hormone therapy. And so that would allow them to have body changes that would be consistent with their identity. Dr. Steven Sondike says the center is especially important to transgender youth who face a higher risk of homelessness and other serious issues if they don't find an affirming place. They have higher risk of suicide, depression, mental health issues. Rebecca Callahan, the executive director of Community AIDS Network Akron Pride Initiative, says a center like this in Akron was much needed. We should uh, be happy for others that are doing something to be happy and be their most authentic self. 
Hospital staff say that time and travel was an issue for transgender children and their families in the Akron area before the center opened. That's because similar centers are further away in Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. Live in Akron, Bob Jones, News 5. Now, when this all started, people would say, okay, that's cool. But the problem is now you don't give them that care. They do it anyway. They fucking ruin your life. They go to social services. This lady bragging about double mastectomies on little kids. Yeah, that's nice. Also, we find out this week that NIH study found that it none of that booster shit worked for kids. Their bodies did not retain whatever they're putting in it and got me sick. We are such a woke society. Then last week... I did podcast about BYU and how horrible that was when it was all why. So this is all over the internet now, and I, I'm happy the duckies beat the shit out of BYU. But I have not listened to this soundbite yet. But this is the next big BYU thing. Fuck the Mormons! Fuck the Mormons! Yeah, that's probably not good. That's probably not good. But if you remember, when a Mormon ran for president, it was okey fucking dokey. It was great. Nobody had problems dogging Morgan, Mormons. We literally had all sorts of fucking articles about how fucked up Morgans, Mormons were because we didn't want Mitt Romney to beat the dear one. Obama. It's crazy. You can't get away from it. That's why I started the show. You just can't get away from it. And people say, well, why are you fighting this? It's always a concern. It, 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 once again, I am not borrowing Ben Shapiro's shtick. I'm a, a citizen who had kids, who had grandkids. It is the fact that you're forcing it on children. If you do it to adults, I don't give a fuck. I, be an elf. Be a lesbian elf. I don't fucking care. But you're pushing it on kids. And you're doing it because you want voters. I mean, the reality is... They're pissed off about libs of TikTok playing people's actual words. And saying they're, it's violence and shit. And then this breaks this week on libs of TikTok. I was just offered $400 to make an anti-Donald Trump propaganda post related to the January 6th investigation that is completely not true. I should start out this video by saying I'm not a Donald Trump supporter, so that should give a little bit of context to where I'm coming from. I'm an attorney. I post legal news and analysis on related topics. Okay, here we go with the story. So first thing first, I get an email from somebody with the Good Info Foundation. We'll talk about them a little more in a minute. I'm going to refer to this person as Jane. Jane sent me a message letting me know she represented the Good Info Foundation and that she was willing to offer a paid collaboration to discuss some topics related to January 6th. I said, sure, why not? I'll learn some more. Jane says the Good Info Foundation will give me $400 to make a post on my page and then share it to Instagram. So you see that blue link? All right, here, we're going to follow it. These are the specific requirements in order to obtain that $400 of how I should refer to the January 6th Capitol raid. Number one, I must call this a criminal conspiracy. Number two, I must say Trump Republicans were responsible. Number three, I must frame it as an attack on my country 
an attack on America or Americans, a criminal conspiracy, and a committed crime. I must attribute the matter to MAGA Republicans. I must make clear that this was ongoing and unresolved. And most importantly, that I must channel all of this unto the manipulation of voter agencies so that I could turn their anger around this event into defiance that would make people more likely to vote in midterms. And the thing that struck me the most was this part, where I was told to talk about the aspects of the Trump campaign's plan. And I was supposed to say that the Trump campaign paid literally millions of dollars to make January 6th happen. So I figured, you know, maybe I missed something. So I said, hey, Jane, what is the basis for the claim that the Trump campaign itself paid millions of dollars to make the January 6th siege of the Capitol happen? Jane doesn't answer the question. Hi, Preston. If you don't want to state that in the video, it's fine. You don't have to use all the bullet points provided. So I kept going. Sure, I'm just wondering if there's support for that claim. Jane doesn't answer again. Let me know if you are interested and the rate works for you. Thanks so much. I'm not interested, and the rate doesn't work for me. This is the Good Info Foundation. They boast on their homepage that good information is the lifeblood of a democracy. You know they're doing this. You know on all of them they're doing it. It's, it's election season. I had a guy on my thread who was saying, is everybody getting more liberal shit? And I'm like, yeah. Lots. I'm getting shit. I, I'm not even following them. I don't follow the people that they say I follow. It keeps on being Brian Kilmeade. I've never liked Brian Kilmeade. I've never followed Brian Kilmeade. But because Brian Kilmeade supposedly follows these people, I'm getting all these liberal things. It's all anti-con, anti-something. And would you put it past them? Hillary had fucking internet trolling farms. They bragged about it during 2016. The media thought it was the greatest thing ever. The real story was that Donald Trump used the internet to get elected because the mainstream media wouldn't let him do anything. After a certain point, they cut him off because all he did was give speeches. And they needed the ratings, but then they started getting lefties going, wait a minute, that's hurting us in the polls. We probably don't need to be airing him all the time, blah, blah, blah. So they stopped airing it. But that's how we got elected. And this all plays perfectly into the fucking immigration shit. This stuff, my God. That's your numbers. 4.4 million. 850,000 getaways. More people that probably live in your town. So 4.4 million people are here. They're here to replace you. And when we know they really don't care about these immigrants, they don't want them in their area. Well, let's just play it. Here is the Martha Vineyard stuff with KGP and actual people talking their theater of how well they did because they kicked their asses out in fucking 36 hours. Arrived last night, make it clear that they were lied to again and again and fraudulently induced to board. Arrived last, Arrived last night, make it clear that they were lied to again and again 
and fraudulently induced to board the planes. They were told there was a surprise present for them and that there would be jobs and housing awaiting for them when they arrived. This was obviously a sadistic lie. Not only did those responsible for this stunt know that there was no housing and no employment awaiting the migrants, they also very intentionally chose not to call ahead to any single office authority on Martha's Vineyard so that even the most basic human needs arrangements could be made, ensuring that no help awaited the migrants at all was the entire point. They were provided with a cartoonishly simple map of Martha's Vineyard and the United States and a brief brochure containing snippets from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts website and instructions to change their address with USCIS when they relocated. This is especially troubling as anyone with even the most basic understanding of the immigration proceedings knows that USCIS was not the agency with whom the migrants would have to record their addresses and has nothing to do with their cases in any way. It is clear that this was an intentional attempt to ensure that these migrants were removed in absentia when they failed to change their address with the proper agency. This was a purposeful derailment designed to prevent people from complying with federal immigration policies. This is problematic because the state should not be interfering with federal immigration policy. Before they boarded the planes, the migrants were processed by agents of the Department of Homeland Security who listed falsified addresses on the migrants' paperwork. Agents apparently chose random homeless shelters all across the country from Washington to Florida to list the migrants' mailing addresses, even when told by the migrants that they had no address in the U.S. According to the paperwork provided to them, the migrants are required to check in with ICE office nearest to the fake address chosen for them by DHS or be permanently removed from the United States with some required to check in as early as this coming Monday. It could not be clearer that this is an attempt to ensure that these people are ordered removed even as they try as hard as they can to comply with the instructions provided to them. There is no other reason to list as someone's mailing address a homeless shelter in Tacoma, Washington when they ship him to Massachusetts. It is sickeningly cruel throwing obstacles in the way of people fleeing violence and oppression, some of whom walked through 10 countries in the hopes of finding safety. It is shameful and inhuman. Many of these victims were deprived of medical care despite clear existing injuries. These are human beings who were deprived of basic human rights. To the people who find themselves, these wonderful people, who find themselves plane wrecked on our island, I have a message for all of them. You are not alone. We have your backs. We are proud to be here for you. And we've got you. If the intention of those who perpetrated this horrendous act was to create a crisis, you have failed. Their demeanor is kind. Their demeanor is grateful. And their demeanor is just that they wanna be doing everything right. Their biggest concern today is that many of them have dates to appear in San Antonio Monday morning, Tacoma, Washington Monday morning, Washington DC Monday morning. You tell me how that's possible.
we will be exploring all civil and criminal legal options to hold the perpetrators accountable and to prevent this injustice from repeating itself. This is apparently, um, you know, he, he said it was essentially no different than what the federal government has done in uh, sending, you know, flights in the middle of the night. That's the way he's characterized it. Uh, you know, uh, taking migrants to various different states. Do you have a response to that? So we are offering solutions. That's what the Biden-Harris administration has been doing since day one, including on the first day putting forth a comprehensive immigration reform to deal with this issue. Why would the president turn down a DHS plan then to move migrants to the northern border to relieve some of the crowding at the southern border? I just, I, I was just asked about this question. That's been already asked and answered. I just, I literally just answered that question. I didn't understand what your answer was. Did well, he turn down the plan or? When this is over, you can look at the, the transcript. Just on the migrant issue, is the administration considering moving some of these migrants from these border communities to other parts of the country to relieve some of the crowding that we've seen? So there's, there's always conversations happening about how to deal with changing circumstances at the border and improve border processing systems. Uh, I don't have any new policies to, to preview from here, but what I will say is we could be doing a lot more to rebuild our immigration system. As I just mentioned, on day one, the president put forward an immigration uh, um, policy, legislation, uh, which we got to remember, this immigration system was also decimated and gutted uh, by this last administration. So again, if Republicans uh, official would, would stop blocking comprehensive immigration, if they would stop doing these political stunts and working with us, we want to work with them on solving this. And there's ways to do that, whether it's record funding that, that is provided to DHS or this comprehensive immigration uh, bill. And so, again, instead of doing these political stunts, putting migrants at risk, children and families at risk, why don't they join us? Um, yesterday, you repeatedly blamed the Trump administration for what we're seeing at the southern border, but the record crossings have been happening under President Biden. One migrant we interviewed yesterday thanks the president for keeping the border open. So I just want to confirm the way that this administration sees it, ending Remain in Mexico or Title 42 had nothing to do with the surge that we're seeing. So let me just step back for a second and lay out what we have done under this administration. 23,000 agents and officers, more than 1,200 additional support personnel working to secure our nation's borders. That's more than what was happening in the last administration. Every individual that is encountered at the border is taken to CBP custody and processed and vetted by Border Patrol agents. Individuals taken into CBP custody are either expelled under the CDC's Title 42 authority as required by court order or placed in a removal procedures. In fact, more individuals encountered at the border will be removed or expelled this year than any previous year. Is that an acknowledgement that, that I just answered your question. We're moving on. That they get away with this shit is just fucking unbelievable. Do you think anybody in the media wouldn't get up and start spouting off that stupid fucking plaque from the bottom of the fucking Statue of Liberty on this shit? 8,000 people a day. They will not, mind you, they will not play sound bites like this. I have two here that are 
what our media would be playing if it, the the wheel was on the other fucking foot, which makes no sense. One, they were all thanking DeSantis, and two, what it's really like on the border. I'm here to Martha's Vineyard. So uh, there's activists here, Jose, that are saying that these people were victims of human trafficking. They want an investigation from the Justice Department onto what Governor DeSantis is doing, what Governor Greg Abbott is doing, because they're saying that these people are being abused and used uh, to bring a border crisis deeper into the country. Now, I can tell you they are not angry at uh, Ron DeSantis. They are actually thanking him for having brought them to Martha's Vineyard, where they were they were very well received. But other people, well, they're saying they're being used as political pawns. They don't resent it for now. Uh, and they know they're the lucky ones. This is one of the common areas where we come to do body recoveries. Uh, it, it's the, the river's low, so the body, the people drown upriver, float down and end up in this low-lying areas, either on the Mexican side or on the American side. Two weeks ago, we had four people that drowned in one day. Now, the next day we had another drowning. The very next day we had another drowning. So right there, you know, you're looking at six people that drowned. So that would overwhelm a facility or, or a morgue. This is what's, what's causing all this, this, this uh, burden on the, on the mortuaries. So there's so many, uh, bodies being recovered that the morticians are asking for assistance and we've actually um, loaned them a refrigerated truck to store all of those bodies. The Rio Grande River is very funny. Sometimes you, you'll be walking in an area where the water will never go above your knee but all of a sudden you'll have a drop of about 10, 12 feet. If you're carrying a baby, uh, you're gonna go down 10, 12 feet with that baby. We had babies not too long ago drown. Uh, we had a three month old baby. We had a three year old baby brother that passed away. The uncle was trying to cross. He fell into a deep hole in the river, let go of the babies, the babies drowned. I would like to see the, the federal government jump in and help out in whatever way they can so that could be alleviated. If they could at least stop this migration, that would be awesome. I don't see any end in sight. Uh, I think Washington needs to do something about it. Eagle Pass is a small city, like I said. We have four ambulances and two reserve trucks. Of course, we have private ambulances uh, that work within the city. But uh, those four trucks, they get overwhelmed every single day. In my career, in the last year or two, I had never seen so many drownings uh, like we're seeing right now. We, we, when I started, we used to do maybe 12 a year. Now we're doing one a day, 30 a month. These are young, young gentlemen, young women that are seen more than any normal person would see in a lifetime. I mean, if you think about it, it's almost like a war zone.
They're not going to start covering that shit, are they? Most Americans already know it. They're not idiots. They're not going to bash these people who this is their sign. It's all over the place. That's what they stand for. They're not going to cover that, that they didn't take care of them, but for fucking 36 hours. They're not going to cover 8,000 a day. Nope. They're going to cover for Biden. They're going to say he's actually not flying them, even though there are fucking stories from NPR. They melted down over it. The media was so fired up. I'm not even covering everything. NPR, illegal aliens, whisked away from Martha Vineyard show. It's not human smuggling when they do it. And that was the migrants sent to Martha Vineyard are being based at Cape Cod. But there's no, there's none of this. This is what you see from every lefty. Here's the media meltdown. Oh my God, they fucking, don't worry, I got a hate section. DeSantis will be worse than Trump. He'll be, Trump will be less Hitlery very, very soon. Miami politics, the media jerk off of the week. Well, first off, Stephanie, I think it's important to clarify the term political stunt. A political stunt is Dr. Oz running for the Senate in Pennsylvania when he resides in New Jersey. A political stunt is Kanye West running for president. A political stunt is Jared Kushner writing a political book that he thinks anyone would really want to read. This is not a political stunt. When you look at parents that are bringing their children to this country in a legal process for asylum, and lie to them under false circumstances and tell them you're taking them somewhere under false pretenses and using them as props. Stephanie, that is not a political stunt. That is an act of evil. And it is an act of evil being done by evil men who are using children and good faith parents coming to this country, the land of the free and opportunity, like my parents did and grandparents did, and shaming them for political points. In the most cynical calculation, Stephanie, what's going on here is they're trying to change the conversation from the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade and making it about immigration. But it is the most cynical, cheap and evil tactic. And I don't think it's going to play here in Florida. I think Ron DeSantis overreached this time. I just think it's absurd, this idea that we're going to use people and human beings that are coming again in a lawful process to seek asylum from a regime as political pawns and political props. That is not what it is going on here. It would be one thing if Governor DeSantis or Governor Abbott were acting in good faith and sitting down with these individuals that crossed the border seeking asylum and said, listen, where would you want to go? Is there another area? But to just cavalierly send them as Ron DeSantis did with a videographer on the plane so he could capture this and have his minions at Fox News waiting the moment the plane landed to put it on the air. It is the most debasing and un-American, un-American act of evil that I've seen. It makes me ashamed to be a Floridian under this governor. My parents came in 1962, thanks to President Kennedy and the governor of Florida who allowed them to come here. They made a successful life. That's part of the reason why I'm on here talking 
on this network tonight. But to treat these individuals, these people who come here in good faith as political props. And they echo something that happened some 60 years of our past. Back to something called the reverse freedom rides. And maybe you've never heard of what this is. You certainly heard of freedom riders, right? But the freedom rides in the reverse when black families were tricked by white supremacists. They were lured by the promise of a job or a better home, and they were bused to Hyannis, Massachusetts, right near John F. Kennedy's holiday home. Now, the number is racked up by Governor's Abbott, and can just put the segregationists of that dark period, well, frankly, to shame in the numbers alone. Now, the reverse freedom riders, they tricked about 200 people into getting onto a bus. 199 or maybe even 200, far too many. Well, today's Republicans have moved more than 9,000 people and are promising more. And mm. that's the point. Every time we see these issues of inhumanity to migrants, there's always a serious discussion and then it falls off. As we've said, the situation is broken. But let's not just leave it here at Joe Biden. Let's go back to the prior president. What happened? People in cages. That's right. People in cages, the inhumanity about that. There was a bluster about that, what happened. Then, what was it, last year? The range used as whips. A bluster then. For the Haitians who yes. were under the bridge yes. yeah. in the Florida, Texas region. Yeah, yes. Texas region, excuse me. Inhumanity once again. The story that you had. I mean, the immigration issue in this country is older than I am old. And we still continue to get upset but where is the fix? And now what's happening? You know, you're sending people to an enclave, an enclave with multi-million dollar homes, and there's no infrastructure to keep them. Well, that's their point, right? right? The and point was to, to, the point really was and felt like, here is a, here is a place. It wasn't just Chicago any longer or New York City. It wasn't where it was a bigger. city with it infrastructure. City. It was, it, you're, you're right. Six towns, six towns. But the issue is the bluster happens and then it dies off. The system is broken and the people who are impacted are people who are underserved, who need Is he exaggerating what the support system is really? I, I mean, do you really think that people who voted Republican or vote for him, voted for him because they want their taxes reduced or because they want this infernal wall to be built, are going to be active in the streets? With 60 guns? to 70 percent so. of Republicans consider Trump the head of well, the Well, they party. may consider him that, but do you think that they're actually going to cause havoc, these people? They're going to be real, numbers. real stupid. They're going to be yeah, well, let me tell you something. Away. They've got to be well, incredibly stupid because there's a bunch of people who are sitting in jail right now and who are getting prosecuted and right now because that. of what they did but in January. They're down they down that. That's my point. But but that's my point. They've seen what happens when you are in sight, when you are in the middle of a riot and you're causing, a, a, you know, violence. You think I that think really matters and, to and people? they never got you. their wall. They didn't. He's yes, out of office. I, I do what do they care really they didn't and not having somebody pardon you? I don't think they have matters. Anna, you and I were walking just just a few weeks ago in front of our building and we had a group of construction workers yelling, Trump 20. I mean, come on. I and I told them they need to watch a January 6th committee I hearing. Do think you know, watching. those guys used to whistle at me. Now they yell out, go Brandon. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> if you wear the jeans, though, they'll whistle. Um, but I, I think you have to bifurcate about not even 30% of the GOP. That is, the diehard will be with him, that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. And what of the diehards, really? I think it's 30% or less. 30? Most of this that kind of, really? that's still a lot. What that's poll a lot. says 30%? Okay, well, it's like yeah, 70 I, but, just let, me, let, let me just real quick. I, 
I we can't let misinformation like mo I, like, out there. I think right, like we'll most of us out. like grew up in families where like you're working nonstop. You're not paying attention to every crazy thing the former president said and your vote. The cause of the problem, of course, is Trump himself and his MAGA acolytes themselves and the people who are willing to do the violence in Trump's name. Again, I'm not. I guess I, I want to say that I'm not surprised that he's threatening this because, A, he's literally done it before. And B, this is literally what conservative white folks do when they don't get their way. They turn violent. As yeah. a black man in this country, as a person who is, who is aware of the black history in the new world, white people turn violent when they don't politically get their way all the damn time in this country. It's what they do. And so from the perspective of a black person, I'm kind of like, welcome to the world that I've been living in, America, because now what we have is white domestic terrorists threatening to turn violence against non-black right. people, against everybody else, if the white supremacist um, idea ideology doesn't win the day and yeah. their white supremacist king is held accountable for crime. That's, and I want to point out, Ellie. Normal. You're, you're, you're right. And you're not opining. I mean, that statement is rooted in history. In fact, if you are even a modest student of history, you have. But there's a timing question I have, Leanne. Mm -hmm. On, I believe it was when is it Tuesday or Wednesday? Lindsey Graham comes out with his um, 15 week abortion ban. And all of a sudden, the next day, Ron DeSantis gets that off the front page. I'm not saying they're connected, but boy, it seemed convenient timing. Peter, I've gotten a few people wondering if we're just getting played by DeSantis. He's pulling a Trump on us, right? We're, we're sitting here. Um, the, the, this is not the center of attention, but boy, he changed the subject and we all went to it. It's like, it's hard to, you can't, we know it's a political stunt. We know it's for media attention. But these were human beings we couldn't ignore it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to say, obviously, he's getting criticized for exploiting people for mm -hmm. a political purpose. But he's got us talking about it. He's got us talking yeah. about it. And the, the point that he's making isn't, you know, an irrational one to talk about. What level of, of responsibility do states that are not at the border have to help out? Fair enough. Obviously, doing it in this way is not actually solving the problem. But look, this is the playbook we've seen now the last three election cycles. It worked for the Republicans as far as they were concerned with Trump in, 20, uh, in sorry, 2016. Yeah. It didn't work in 2018 when he tried it with right. the caravan. Fans, right in the midterm yeah. last time, mm -hmm. he tried to make immigration. Claire a big McCaskill issue. would disagree. I mean, it, it obviously it, it, worked you know, in some places. I was just yes. going to say it does yes. work. In it's a stunt using human beings to score political points. Fifty undocumented migrants, including several children, arriving in Martha's Vineyard, flown in by Florida Republican governor and presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis, an effort to turn the spotlight to immigration just two months before the midterm elections. Local officials had no idea the families were coming, but DeSantis made sure cameras were there to capture it all. Today, California Governor Gavin Newsom was blunt, tweeting what DeSantis and Abbott are doing isn't clever, it's cruel. Newsom asking the Justice Department to investigate these inhumane efforts to use kids as political pawns. The press secretary saying Republicans aren't serious about fixing the problem. And caught in the middle, thousands of families fleeing violence, poverty, and climate change, looking for a better life. Well, tonight, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is under fire for using taxpayer dollars to organize flights of asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard. The backlash comes as the Democratic governor of California, Gavin Newsom, is asking the Justice Department to pursue kidnapping charges against Republican governors who are sending migrants to Democratic-run cities. CBS's Elaine Quijano is in Martha's Vineyard. 
The 48 asylum seekers, mainly from Venezuela, landed in Martha's Vineyard Wednesday afternoon aboard two planes from Texas and organized by Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis. Luis Fonseca says he left Venezuela to look for a better life for his three children who were still there. He didn't know he would end up here. They told me there was a work opportunity, he says. We were going to a city, but we ended up staying here. Democratic Massachusetts State Representative Dylan Fernandez called the move by DeSantis disgusting. Ron DeSantis is a coward. Only a coward uses women and children for their own political gain. An attention-making move getting just that tonight on the record migrant crossings at the southern border. DeSantis arguing every community in America should be sharing in the burden and blaming the increase on Biden administration immigration policies. This evening, the newly arrived migrants in Martha's Vineyard are getting care and shelter as Democrats accuse DeSantis of using them as political pawns. As the local island community in Massachusetts rallied to help the migrants today, some of them have been through really horrific things. Anger among some Democrats. We have the governor of one of the largest states in the country hatching a secretive plot to use humans, to use women, children, families as a political uh, pawn. Let's bring in CNN political commentator and former Obama administration official Van Jones and former Republican Congresswoman Barbara Comstock. Uh, Van, uh, we just heard the mayor of New York City there talking about how, you know, at the very least, they're just not getting any kind of coordination with these governors before these folks are, are these migrants are dropped off in this fashion. What do you make of what these Republican governors are up to? Well, I mean, it's just it's really shameful. Um, you know, there is a way to handle something like this. Uh, look, I think we need uh, more immigration, not less. I mean, we probably if we could get more people here working would probably help with inflation and everything else. But there is an orderly way to do it. Uh, unfortunately, there's a complete breakdown. And what you need in a situation like this is for someone like DeSantis to convene the governors so he could use the National Governors Association, a bipartisan group, and say, look, we can't do any more. We need your help. And you coordinate it. That's not what they're doing at all. They're just doing these stunts and these ambushes. Which they're basically trying to score political points. They're making a point. They're not solving the problem. And so it's actually, they're kind of, I would say, you know, using or even pimping the pain of the border towns that do need help. They're not solving that problem, but they're now just you know, making these political uh, grand gestures, which I think are really, it's just, it's really disgusting. Barbara, what do you think? Uh, I mean, this is obviously not a solution to put people on a plane or on a bus and send them to who knows where. Why not offer solutions like Van is saying? Well, ironically, uh, Charlie Baker, a Republican governor of Massachusetts, made uh, the very point that uh, Van was just making. He said we need um, workers in Massachusetts, and he thanked uh, his fellow Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, for sending the free help, the asylum seekers, um, sending them to Massachusetts because they need uh, service workers, as so many uh, states across the country do, and we need to have uh, solutions to immigration. We need to have immigration reform. And I can tell you in 2018, when many Republicans, Carlos Cabello, a Republican from Florida, 
Will Hurd, a Republican from Texas, uh, when they came together, and I supported them, to have immigration reform. Ironically, it was a bill that uh, Donald Trump even said he would sign. Of course, Ron DeSantis was part of the Freedom Caucus who opposed it because the Freedom Caucus always wanted to have issues rather than solutions. So I think a great thing for uh, President Biden would be to convene people like Charlie Baker, like a Will Hurd, like a Carlos Curbelo, and call the bluff of of these of, of governors like Governor DeSantis and say, let's sit down with people like Charlie Baker, one of the most popular Republican governors in the country, people like Will Hurd and Carlos Cabello. Let's bring them together on the border and say, let's let's work on those solutions that these people actually really want to work on. Get the Chamber of Commerce that wants to have a solution on immigration reform because we have so many service jobs. We need more nurses. Uh, we need more more uh, legal immigration in this country. And I think you'd find a lot of Republicans who want to help in that regard. Right. There are people in both parties who want to treat these migrants humanely in addition to getting them jobs. Just treat them humanely. Yeah, these were like asylum seekers. Yeah. Yeah, and right. these, and, and, yeah, and these are asylum seekers from Venezuela where, where Republicans, I thought Republicans were supposed to support asylum seekers who are fleeing countries. Is now from here, South Dakota, is Republican Senator uh, Mike Rounds. Uh, Senator Rounds, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Let me start with uh, immigration. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis flew planes of migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard this week without any warning to local officials. I get that the immigration system is a mess and has needed reform for decades, but these are people fleeing Marxism in Venezuela. Many were, uh, they say, falsely told there would be jobs and housing waiting for them when they arrived in Massachusetts. Do you support uh, what Abbott and, Santa and DeSantis are doing? They're doing their best to try to send a message to the rest of the nation about the plight of those individuals that are coming from south of the border. You're talking about 3.4 million people just since the start of this Biden administration that have crossed the border. And they're coming into southern states. What is a governor supposed to do? They're trying to send a message to the rest of the country that this is not acceptable and that their states can't handle that type of an inflow. Now, that's the equivalent of four times the population of my state of South Dakota. But Jake, it's more than that. It's also everything else that's coming across the border at the same time. We're 1,200 miles away from the border here in South Dakota, and yet the drug trafficking still affects our state as well. Our Native American population reservations have got huge inflows of drug trafficking coming into yeah. our state, into some of the heaviest poverty areas of the entire country. But so. It's affecting all of our states, but the administration is not doing anything about it. So, as I said, this immigration crisis has been going on f literally for decades. There hasn't been a major immigration bill uh, since Ronald Reagan was president. Um, but, but as, as uh, you, you did not note, uh, and I did uh, earlier in the show, uh, one of the buses um, sent by Texas Governor Greg Abbott dropped off about 50 migrants in front of the vice president's residence, including a, a one-month-old baby. Um, there isn't any heads up being given to Mayor Adams, you just heard from him, uh, or the individuals on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, I, I get they're trying to send a message, they're trying to get the attention, but there also, isn't there a degree of, of trolling going on here? Uh, and, and, and do you really have no issue with using human beings, a one-month-old baby, little kids, to, to make a political point like this? You have to put it in perspective of what's happening at the southern border right now. This is every single day, thousands of individuals coming across with babies. 
they're coming into those states, those governors are facing that, not just at the terms of 50 of them, they're talking about hundreds of them, if not thousands per day. And so, yeah, I mean, do any of us like the situation that we're in? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I would suspect that the individuals in the southern states that are trying to find a way to get the attention of the administration would love to have other alternatives to them. It's been 606 days since Joe Biden took office, and this problem has done nothing except continue to develop. This is a national problem, and yet these governors on, along the southern borders are the ones that are faced with trying to, to address it. Right. And it's not just 50 of these individuals coming across, it's thousands, and it's on a daily basis. Right. And of course, uh, the immigration laws in this country do allow people to come to this country to seek asylum. Uh, it seems to me that, that the larger solution that needs to happen here, and I don't know that you would disagree, is a comprehensive immigration bill that would include border security, uh, and then, you know, perhaps in order for there to be a compromise, a pathway to citizenship for people who have been here for decades. In, in the more than 20 years I've been in this town, I've seen people like President George W. Bush and Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator Marco Rubio trying to get immigration reform done, working with Democrats, every time they were defeated by House Republicans who wouldn't go along with any sort of compromise. Would you support restarting bipartisan negotiations to try and to try to finally fix this broken immigration system? Those discussions are ongoing in the United States Senate. In fact, the last time that there was a hard push was in 2017. Myself and Senator Angus King uh, co-sponsored the measure together on behalf of a bipartisan group. We got 54 votes in the Senate at that time, and that included addressing the folks that have been brought here through no fault of their own, the Dreamers. We addressed chain migration. Uh, we addressed a pathway to citizenship over an extended period of years. We thought we had a pretty good approach. Nothing has happened during this administration. Yes, would we like to step forward again and, and try appro an approach again? Absolutely. Do we have to address it? Yes. Do we have to have uh, a border security? Before anything else can happen, we've got to be able to defend that border. We've got to be able to make a border that actually works. Otherwise, why should people pay any attention to the laws that we've got? And what good would it do to reform them if we're not going to enforce them? Let's turn. They are such fucking hypocrites. They know this shit's happening. They know that he's doing it. But they're not going to admit that. Ted Cruz... God bless him. I don't like the guy, but this this is this is worthy right there. That sums it all up. Where are the photo ops? Why are they not down at the border? Anybody? I mean, they did under Trump. They were there every day. She then literally, excuse the fucking dog, went on a whole fucking screed of it's appalling the far-right politicians seem to have decided to fall before an election to their regularly scheduled time to commit crimes against humanity. Don't normalize this lying and trafficking people for TV and clicks. It's politics as usual. It's abuse. Everybody did. They put her in front of Martha's Vineyard. Martha Vineyard flights leave migrant advocates scrambling. That is actually the Washington Post. They actually printed that shit. Do I have it? No, I don't. DeSantis sending asylum seekers to Martha Vineyard. No, they weren't. Schmidt. 
That's why I'm doing a ginger chew. This is another aspect Ren Ron DeSantis' assault on dis- de- decency that deserves comment. He is literally attacking a human community in a different state and trying to hurt and destabilize it. He's abusing his powers to attack Massachusetts. Please, Fox News and Mega. Soledad O'Brien, a has-been. You knew she was coming up for this shit. I mean, they always do. Basically, human trafficking, cheered on by people who call themselves Christians. Disgusting. The bulwark, Bill Crystal, who would be on the other side of this if he still is a conservative. Those planes are filled with actual human beings, people with dignity. Dignity. It's always dignity when Republicans do it, but not Democrats. People, names of families, and this Christian man. Christian. It's always Christian. Christian, Christian, Christian. You fucking hate Christians. Why do you use that? Why? The Fed shipped literally hundreds of thousands of illegal aliens around the country in the middle of the night and then threatening and sue jail Ron DeSantis for sending 50. 50. It sums it all up. 50. Amid border surge, Biden admin plans to send migrants to cities deeper. They already are. And if you've been with the show long enough, I talked about shit like this. Look at the photo. What is that photo, folks? It's made to look like he's a bad person. It's the subtleness. That's how they play it. I, I, wow. I don't even know what to say, to be quite honest. A lot of times on this, you expect them to be jackholes. But this is even extra special jack for them. This is, wow. I can only find one Republican on a show who fought back. Do you, do you feel comfortable with this idea of, I mean, you used to work for somebody that lived in the vice president's residence. Do you think this is a good idea, just dropping busloads of people, including last night, there was a, a one-month-old baby uh, uh, on a busy street John, in Washington? John, it wasn't happening in the previous administration because the previous administration actually secured the border. Let's be honest. I think that what no. this is doing is this is highlighting the hypocrisy and I think in many cases fake outrage by those on the left and some in the media. The migrants in Florida, they're not arriving on the shores of Florida. They're not walking across the Florida Georgia line. They're being flown in by the Biden administration. So somehow it's okay to fly them across the interior of the United States, everywhere across the United States, but it's wrong for the governor to then send them to one of the wealthiest communities in America. I think it's highlighting that hypocrisy. But there's a difference between doing it in a coordinated fashion and just showing up at Martha's Vineyard with let's, two Let's planes. question how really coordinated it is that they're being dropped off all across the interior. And if we were really concerned about the humanitarian crisis, John, then actually what we would be doing is we'd be stopping the crisis at the border. There's 200,000 migrants every month, and they estimate 50% of the young women are either raped or sexually molested, making that long journey from Peru and Colombia up there. If we actually had a policy in place to return migrants to Mexico while they waited for their asylum appeals, as happened in the Trump-Pence administration. The thing that's funny is, is you have articles like this. It's literally impossible to honestly and logically say the policy hasn't changed. He has flip-flopped so much, it gets to the point, who's the fucking president? Because you know he is not doing this shit. Imagine American congressional, blah, 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 blah. It's like Ben Shapiro, man. It's just mush mouth. He's not fucking typing that crap. He doesn't type that stuff. No. No. 
White House clarifies that Biden's statement of 60 Minutes does not reflect official, official opinion on everything. It's over and over. Biden draws heat because he said the pandemic's over. It is over. But he's not in charge. And while this is going on, we still got that racist road, road idiot. What the fuck is a racist road? You can maybe put your finger on three or four places ever that they did it on purpose because of black people. No offense to my brethren there. Alabama, Mississippi. That makes sense. Yeah, they probably did. But my favorite thing was this week. This week was awesome for this. And this this was trending. It was everywhere. New York Times. Trump gave a dark address at a political rally. Trump's frightening rally in Ohio shows the media still doesn't get it. You know why they taped that. They put it up there because they needed to counter what literally was going on. Their guy gave a bad speech. It sucked for them. But then they decided to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into stupid. These are tweets that it's not seen. I'm just going to cover this. There's many of this. Getting one picture where they were raising their hands. Walter Schaub was the first one. This is Sarah Raro. She is from CNN. This is Trump rally last night. At a glance, it could be Nazi Germany. If you're a Republican, you are a Nazi. If you are married to, dating, or friends with a Republican, you are married to, dating, or friends with a Nazi. If you don't want to be a Nazi, speak up. That's a real thing. They really, really, really believe that. Yet, they're the administration, and they're the fucking party... Let's say this. The Democrats aren't right on everything. And I'm willing to sit down and have conversations about how we can move out of this age of stupidity and into an age of reconciliation and reform. How do we fix all of these broken systems? Some of those answers will come from Republicans. It's not not the extremists that we're dealing with every single day. We've got to kill and confront that movement. Um, but, the, you know, working with normal mainstream Republicans, I think that's going to be really, really important because we have to reform uh, these systems. And I will tell them, too, like, we got to get the government out of our business. I'm all in on that. You see the Dobbs decision. You see, you know, in Florida. Uh, The Department of Homeland Security was formed in the wake of the September 11th attacks. How has it evolved since then to safeguard the U.S. from foreign threats? The um, Jonathan, the threat landscape has evolved considerably over the last 20 years. You know, back when 9-11 occurred in those in those years, we were very focused on the foreign terrorists, the individual who sought to do us severe harm to enter the United States and and do us harm. It then evolved. We began uh, to be more and more concerned about the individual already resident in the United States, radicalized by a foreign terrorist 
ideology. Now um, we are seeing an emerging threat, of course, over the last several years of the domestic violent extremist. The individual here in the United States radicalized to violence by a foreign terrorist ideology, but also an ideology of hate, anti-government sentiment, false narratives propagated on online platforms, even personal grievances. The threat landscape has evolved. 20 years ago, uppermost in our minds was not the cybersecurity threat, the threat of cyber criminals or foreign adverse um, states. Now it very much is. We have evolved. We have grown to meet the evolving threat. We have a cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency. We have a center for prevention programs and partnership to address the threat of domestic violent extremism. We've grown our grant funds working in partnership with state, local, tribal, territorial governments. We've grown along with that threat because it is our obligation to do so, to make sure that the American people are safe and secure, regardless of the nature of the threat that we confront. Mm -hmm. Mr. Secretary, you have said uh, that domestic extremism, quote, is the single greatest terrorism-related threat in the United States. What are the best ways to combat domestic, the domestic terrorism threat? I think, uh, of course, we have to uh, address the underlying cause. And in fact, uh, the president uh, is convening a summit against hate uh, next week. Uh, we have to address why do people radicalize to violence? Um, and we have to work with local communities to equip and empower them to address uh, the threat that could materialize. You know, we have seen in Buffalo, New York, in Uvalde, Texas, um, in Highland Park, um, individuals who uh, showed signs of descending uh, down a path uh, to violence. And we have to educate people on how to identify the signs when somebody uh, is in need of help and to bring that help to bear so that that They say that stuff. We don't say that. It goes back to the core problem. They truly believe you're evil. They say it over and over. How can they not? When you say it over and over and over and over and over, what happens? You believe it. It goes back to why they think it is okay to dick with the election. The Atlantic... And I don't know if I got the screenshot. No, I didn't. The Atlantic, actually incredible. The Atlantic explains a meme led to an insurrection. How memes led to an insurrection. In January 2021, a meme war spilled onto the streets of Washington, D.C. Joan Donovan, Emily Dreyfus, and Brian Freeberg write, a president who understood the power of memes was able to send thousands of people into battle against a democracy. They're not making that up. They believe it. They believe it was a total insurrection. They don't just say it because it's legally the way you got to say things so that you can pin the tail on the donkey. They know the power of being able to use words. That's why they define words. That's why they redefine words. Excuse me. That's why they don't define words, and that's how they redefine words. 
They make sure it is vague. If you leave it vague, you can slam people for shit that wasn't that bad. Remember, they're the people that allowed people to firebomb buildings, burn down precincts and everything, and set them free. And they helped finance it. You don't think those buses just showed the fuck up unpaid for? They were busing BLM. The night that the GOP was getting mobbed in D.C., who the fuck you think fucking financed that? Democrats. They financed it. Because they needed those. It was working for them. The only problem is pollsters' threat on effect, mega forces, and deplorable rhetoric has polling speaks volumes. In 2016, Trump supporters were called deplorables and other inflattering names. This was a major contributor to the shy Trump voters phenomenon most polling missed when resulted in a major loss in public confidence. In 2020, people who supported Trump or espoused conservative values at a step with woke culture found themselves being canceled or doxxed. This led to a hidden voter that most polling under the counted. Therefore, Trump's support in key battleground states exceeded expectation. Now that Biden administration is essentially classified mega Republicans as a threat to democracy, marshalling federal law enforcement to focus on them, this move has created a new type of voter that will be even harder to poll or even estimate. I call this new group the submerged voters. I talked about this in the lead-in. They aren't putting stickers on their car, signs on their yards, posting their opinions, or even answering polls. At this point, I think it's fair to say that Biden's pursuit of the attack on mega Republican has created an army of voters who will virtually be impossible to poll. The 2022 Republican turnout will likely be higher than any of the polls or models are showing. All polls, including ours, will understand the impact of these submerged voters. And they're going to show up. Former top FBI official involved in Trump-Russia investigation under scrutiny by federal prosecutors for his own ties to Russia. They're just bumper stickers. They talk about the Constitution. They talk about how important our institutions are, and they've destroyed every institution. Instead of doing a This Is America to end this show, I'm going to play one soundbite. It's amazing, but CBS actually covered immigration. U.S. border officials said today just over 2 million migrants have been apprehended and processed in the last year. That record high includes more than 200,000 just last month. CBS's Manuel Bohorkas reports tonight from El Paso, Texas, a border city struggling to respond. Yet another bus carrying migrants arrived in New York City from Texas, a multi-day journey that for many started here. El Paso, where Border Patrol says more than a thousand migrants are crossing into the area a day. To ensure they're no longer sleeping in the streets, the city set up this migrant welcome center. You're getting an average of 400 people a day? Yes, sir. And that's, that's a lot. And that's going to be increasing shortly. So you don't see this slowing down at this point? At this point, we're just managing the numbers as they come in. 
The asylum seekers here are mostly from Venezuela, Nicaragua and Cuba, which lack diplomatic ties with the U.S. and therefore no quick way to return them. Marielba Atencio is trying to get to New York with her three-year-old son. There's no work, not enough money. You think you, you would die? Here, they get help reaching their next destination, some seeing it laid out for the first time. Pero está viendo que largo va a ser el viaje. You're seeing how long it's going to take. El Paso has sent nearly 60 buses with migrants north, but the city says it's closely coordinated that with local leaders at those destinations to ensure they are ready to receive them. We're also learning tonight that a local sheriff has launched a criminal investigation into how Florida's governor transported nearly 50 migrants to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts last week. Nora. Many Mahorcas on the border. Thank you. That's it. That's all it's going to cover. They're not going to talk about this. They're just not. Four million people have entered the company country in two years. So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Share this to family and friends. And go to FOPPodcast.com to listen or view or find all previous shows. Disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yayas. And thank you for listening. I'm going to end kind of unorthodox today. I do not like Black Rifle coffee. I, I think their coffee tastes like shit. I've worked with them and they're a bunch of assholes. I don't like them at all. That was my time when I was a manager. I just don't like them. Probably the reason why I got fired because my second command who stabbed me in the back love them fuckers so could have something to do with it but they did have another segment that i want to make sure that we play and it's a 20-minute video about leaving afghanistan from veterans point and i think going to this election for me how i will vote in november is all about afghanistan sure inflation's horrible sure all this stuff is terrible and he's a shitty president but what they did in Afghanistan is just unforgivable. You cannot forgive what they did. So anytime I can play sound bites, I will. So we'll close the show on that. We'll shoot for um, a show on Saturday, 24th. Yeah, Friday I'm going somewhere, 24th. 24th September. So we'll see you at 24th September. Until then, take care. This is a Black Rifle Coffee production. Not mine, but I'm going to play it anyway because everybody needs to hear it. Take care. We begin tonight with the stunning collapse in Afghanistan. The Taliban's advance was just like so fucking fast. So fast. You would just see atrocities. It's just, it's a nightmare kind of situation. The situation is changing there minute by minute. The Taliban have surrounded Kabul, the capital city. Thousands of U.S. citizens and Afghans are desperately trying to flee Afghanistan. I'm a retired Army Ranger. I did about 54 months total combat limits. I was at HKIA. It fucking sucked. It was one of the worst fucking things I've ever seen. The despair at the airport, overwhelming. The U.S. is sending thousands of its troops back to Afghanistan. They're pleading with you, saying, like, please shoot me, kill me. The Taliban will rape me, kill me. I just want to die. I mean, that's, uh, how do you expect to tell, like, a young 20-year-old how to handle something like that? You can't. I try not to think about on a daily basis, as hard as it may be, but I do, I think about it every day. I was with the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit, tasked with gathering photographic and video imagery of the evacuation in Hikaya. 
So the 24th Mew, we were on standby in Kuwait. We were told that, okay, we're gonna go do this evacuation. And two days later, the 15th, we found ourselves in Hkaya. So the first one and a half to two days that I was there, relatively calm. Obviously, I was still nervous because like I had never been to Afghanistan before. I've grown up during the, the GWAT era, you know what I mean? I came in the Marine Corps in 2016, and by that point, most combat deployments had ended. I deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan uh, 15 times. The reason I went to HKIA was to report the news for Coffee or Die. One of the groups that I was talking to was a, an NGO called Ark Solace. And I was reporting on these guys had started a thing with some of their old counterparts to get commando and special mission wing families out of Afghanistan so that the guys could go out and fight and not worry about their families getting, you know, hemmed up by the Taliban or, or whoever. And it was a super weird feeling flying into Afghanistan on a commercial airliner. And then we get on the ground on the 21st. No one really there knew that we were coming or what we were doing or what we were all about. And I was like, and I looked around, I'm like, eh, no one really is keeping track of anything here. So I just fucking stayed. I think it was the second night that I was there that everything kind of like went haywire. They had this like infrared feed on some televisions that had been hung up in the COC. We're watching this feed because everybody's like paying attention. We're like, hey, what the hell's going on? This was like something I'd never seen before. It was like a white mass of people just running. Just thousands and thousands of people. It was, it was insane. Neither me or my OIC said a word to each other. All we did was like put our kits on, grab our weapons, and I grabbed my camera, and then we headed down to the PAX terminal. Walking out of the COC, I was terrified. Like I had, had no idea like what to expect, who these people were, what their intention was. So we run down there like as fast as we can. Everybody is postured up, you know, ready to get into a gunfight. I link up with this platoon commander and I followed him and his platoon out onto the tarmac. That's where we came upon just thousands and thousands of desperate people just like trying to get on an aircraft. We pushed these people back all night. There was all this gunfire going on, but we were all online all night, pushing people back all night. And then eventually we got them back onto the civilian side of the airport. It was the next morning, the sun was coming up. We were still just standing there. That's when 2-1 showed up and relieved us. I was new, I wanted to be in the Marine Corps uh, since I was seven years old. And I always dreamed about being able to go to places like Afghanistan or Iraq, but you gotta be careful what you wish for. I was an 0311 squad leader with 2-1 Echo Company 1st Platoon. My captain, Captain Barnhazel, he brought us in, told us to get ready. Sassar Hoover, he really got our platoon molded and ready to go. And I was most nervous that we were gonna miss it. And so I was just worrying that like, I wasn't gonna have the opportunity to help out uh, something that I grew up watching my entire life and I didn't wanna miss that opportunity. On the flight, it was very quiet. Everyone was very focused. By that time that we actually went condition one, that's when I th you could see the realization on a lot of the Marines' faces because they're like, wow, this is this is serious, now we're actually doing this. So then that next day, they were still out there. And at this point, it was like a standoff. That's, that's when they started crowding C-17s that were taken off. And obviously, you know, 
or like hanging on to these things just to like give a perspective like desperation. Better fall away. What? Oh, the new fell, dude. Those are people falling off that Holy fucking plane. Fuck. Holy, Holy shit. Wow. Oh, my what? God. Oh, my God. So we're out there just all night again. Some dude, obviously SF, he rolled up on a little motorbike, like a dirt bike. He was passing this word down the line. But he was basically saying, like, hey, the Taliban's here. Don't shoot them. They're here to help. And we all kind of just, like, looked at each other like, what the hell did he just say? And then, like, not even a minute later, here they come. You know, they have, like, their AK-47s. They got these big, like, sheep-herding sticks. And basically, they start pushing these people back as well. They were, like, beating these people. Like, I'd never seen, like, somebody swing an AK-47 like a baseball bat before. Or smack a kid with a sheep-herding stick across the head. And we really couldn't do anything about it. We kind of just stood there and watched. Later on that night, that same night, finally push them off. That's when they started crowding the gates real bad. So then pretty much every day after that was just a grind. It was getting a little chaotic. It just kind of seemed like nobody knew really what was going on. So that morning we went to the East Holding area. This is the first time I actually got to see the Afghans up close and personal. When we arrived there, it was just a mess. Uh, people are just pushing everywhere, throwing people aside, cutting people off, stealing food from them, just doing whatever means they had necessary to try and get out or just try and push themselves ahead. In order to get like to the East Gate or the Abbey Gate, you had to drive around the airfield to get to it. So we had to find a vehicle. So this is like no rules Kabul. Hey, you need a car? Okay, find one. The Brits had a car, like this van, and they already hotwired it, so all I had to do was put the, <laughs> put, the, uh, put the wires together. And then that became our uh, little public affairs van for a while. It was like Lord of the Flies there. I needed a truck, so we went and found a truck and no one was using it. So we hotwired it, took it, <laughs> you know. I'm trying to do dispatches for Coffee or Die. You know, once it was kind of figured out that I was there, I was getting hundreds of messages a day. Hey, my Terp is there. This old commando that I knew is there. Or this guy's family is there, whatever. I was getting hundreds of messages of like, hey, can you help get this person out? And using this network of people back home that are communicating with the Afghans that are trying to get out, communicating with the active duty mill that's there, communicating with other agencies that are there, and trying to figure out where we can pluck these people. Do as many trips as I could to get people. You'd pull them through the gate. If you're, you know, US passport holder, like you could kind of fake the funk of like bringing people through. Like I didn't wear any press things or any of that. I just would do it basically until my phone died. And then I would go back, plug my phone in, you know, sleep for a half hour. It was pretty much uh, like that for the whole time. And just trying to get as many people out as, as we could. I would describe the conditions outside that gate as like kind of apocalyptic. It was horrible. Tens of thousands of people desperate for their lives, you know, waist deep in raw sewage. I was like this far, eyeball to eyeball with dudes, Taliban guys, you know, which was wild. It was crazy. Like, fuck. I just want to burn you down, dude. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Another thing about the conditions of the gates were the Marines the, and, the, and the paratroopers. And they were young, you know. I would say the majority of the people I came across, this was their first deployment. It was their first time in Afghanistan. Those kids, they didn't ever train for this. 
I mean, I was an infantry Marine. I didn't know exactly what type of documentation I was going to be supposed to be looking for. We got told on the fly we're looking for either U.S. passport, visa, or green card. Those are the three documents they needed. And then Department of State would look over their credentials. You'd be coming into a lot of counterfeit visas, passports, and everything else. And Department of State was very understaffed. We can look at hindsight and be like, oh, okay, the Taliban didn't just go around wholesale just slaughtering people. But at this point, we thought they would. So everybody you don't let in, you're like, okay, I just sentenced you to death, like because you don't have the right paper or whatever. As a comstrat marine, you're always told, like, okay, be a fly on the wall, try not to, you know, get involved, like, in what's going on. But that's impossible. Camera gets put down and provide, you know, any just any sort of help that you can. Some gates were worse than others, and they would vary. Like, you would just see atrocities. People are getting trampled. There's tear gas. There's gunfire going off. It's just, it's a nightmare kind of situation. All this like chaos happening and then you have to make a decision and just to look in their face when you have to tell somebody, hey, we're not accepting you right now. Like you would have thought that like you gave them a death sentence. I had these two girls and I was walking and they were being dragged on my feet and they're saying like, oh, please God, save me, help me. Taliban, they just raped and killed my sister. I need you to please help me. And unfortunately, I didn't have any of the documentation that I had to have. One of the Marines take them, put them back in the river and wait with everybody else. There was one guy who was like a, an NDS colonel. He basically escaped a raid, showed up to the gate. He left with what was on his back. A buddy of mine who was a Marsat guy was like, hey, I worked with this guy. Can you get him through the gate? And I was like, yeah, I can get him through the gate, man. But like, he has nothing. Got him through the gate, but then they didn't let him on a plane. He's probably dead. Throughout the whole day, the crowd was making threats towards us, saying, oh, hate you Americans, I hope the Taliban kills you all, I hope you all die. Like, they were throwing rocks at people. You're seeing little kids walking around just crying, they don't have parents, they're naked. You could just really see sort of the savagery from a lot of those people. The men, they would come in and try and steal the food from the women and the families. Just people begging, begging to like come through these gates. It was just complete desperation. So we were there for probably like 20 hours. Went back another 24 hours off, then went back out. Most of the days just kind of bled together, uh, just from exhaustion, lack of food, um, just constantly working. You'd see like one terrible thing happen and then, you know, try and find some time to like process like what was happening and what you just saw. And then it's like you go back to work and it's like just something else would happen. With the help of those Marines and the paratroopers, was able to get, you know, for the most part, Everybody that I like tried to go after, you know, me and, and this other dude from, from Mark Salas. I sent one dispatch back, Coffee or Die ran it, then the New York Post picked it up and ran it. Then I started to blow up Fox and CNN, ABC, NBC, blah, blah, blah. So they're like, holy shit, there's someone there, right? Like there's a fucking journalist there. Because at the beginning, all the journalists were consolidated and not really able to do anything. They wanted me to do a hit for, I think it was like Good Morning America or some shit. Go back to the dude I was working with. Hey man, I'm gonna pack my shit and get on one of these birds and boogie out of here. I was on a C-17 with, fuck, I don't know. They were fitting a ton of people on those things. It was like no space whatsoever. Everybody's sitting on the floor. It's August 26th, you know, everybody was kind of on edge. On my platoon, we were right where the sniper tower was, running the search pit. You could just tell that something was up. There was an assumption throughout the entire time that we were there that something was going to happen. It was not a matter of if, but when. 
my platoon sergeant, Staff Sergeant Hoover, came up to me. We were just shooting the shit as always. He was my mentor throughout most of the time in the Marine Corps. I wanted to be just like him. And then he was telling me that he's gonna go back into Schitt's Creek to try and pull out some families and just help out as best he could. Uh, the female engagement team also left my squad and I had to stay back. We were staying there and we got word that there might be like a potential IED threat at Abbeygate. We immediately got in our Vic and took off to Abbeygate. About maybe a couple minutes passed, that's when I felt everything get pulled into my body, was held there for a second, then just ripped right back out. Look up, see the cloud of smoke, and then all of a sudden you just start hearing all the screams. Right before we got there, the bomb went off, and we pull up, and it's like chaos. Got up, I don't remember saying it, but one of my Marines told me, I said, hey, I need you guys to set up security here. I'm gonna go push up because there's most likely a secondary. And then that's when I start hearing the gunshots. You can tell if you're being shot, you know the snaps, the seeing that come up all in front of the truck. At that point, shooting ceased. As I moved up, I honestly don't know who it was. I don't know if it was my platoon sergeant or not. Saw some Marines are trying to drag him, pull him out. So I grabbed part of the flak, grabbed him, pulled him up, and then helped load him up. It looked like they had an entire company of Marines Post it up, it's like, if anything comes over that wall, you know, do what you need to do. We decided that we were gonna go closer to where the bombing went off. It was just so you know, shocking, you know, seeing all that. I saw actually my Sergeant Major, he was trying to perform some aid on one of the Marines. We started treating him, picked him up, I started talking to him. I could tell he was in bad shape. He was going white quick. As we're about 100 feet from the truck, I looked back down on him, I could tell he, he died. And then you got all the people from the river, they're coming out just screaming, holding up dead kids, mangled body parts, everything you could imagine. It was, it was hellish. And there were also, there were people that were very calm and they were trying to get the job done. And their job was to get these casualties out of there. Uh, they told us we need to go clear out Shit's Creek for anything else. Pushed up into there and I just had a moment where I looked through and I was like, holy shit. There was probably about 50, 60 bodies maybe stacked up. It almost looked like a beaver dam. And then I looked to my left and I saw a really good buddy of mine, Sergeant Vargas Andrews. He was hurt really bad. We had guys like Staff Sergeant Emmett down there, as well as team leader for Reaper 2. And that Sergeant Smith, they were really providing great aid. I started helping out as best I could, just trying to talk to Vargas, trying to keep him awake as they're trying to patch him up. We put him on a riot shield, we pulled out, and then dropped him off with the corpsman on the truck. And then from there, linked back up with my squad, got accountability immediately, and we just had security set up. We eventually wind up at the Roll 2 hospital. So we were just carrying stretchers, you know, helping out as many, you know, people as we could. Basically, we just stayed up all night, you know, on edge, like, because there was word there was going to be a ground attack after the bombing. So we were on standby for that for like the rest of the night. I landed in Doha. They dropped the ramp of the bird, and I turned my phone on. And it's just like, Wah! like going crazy. And I was like, fuck. That really, really, really fucking sucks. Like 30 minutes after I took off is when the bomb hit at Abbeygate. Later that night, my platoon got pulled in. This is my platoon commander uh, broke the news to us that Staff Sergeant Hoover passed away. Oh, he always was just absolute amazing person. Just couldn't ask for anything better than a man. That was something that hit everybody very hard at once. And that's something that'll always stick with me and that'll bother me knowing if I just kept him there for maybe a couple minutes more or if I went with him and we just did something a little bit different. I'd like to think maybe he would still be here. The casualty count kept growing. That eventually, once we, once it got to 13, it, you know, it stopped. Once they put out the casualty list, like a few of those Marines, like 
I worked with them like every day. Getting people through the gate, getting them onto the planes, like they were out there like smoking and joking with me, you know, the whole time. And yeah, it sucked, you know, that's the best way I can put it. So basically the next, the next day, everybody's exhausted and just like, morale is obviously pretty fucking low. And everybody gathers for this procession. I had the honor to at least carry my platoon sergeant out of Afghanistan. That was a very somber moment for everybody. Watching this funeral procession, everything that had happened up to that point was just so loud and chaotic, but it was like so still. It was a mixed bag of emotions. You're watching your brothers and sisters getting loaded on to a C-17 in a fucking sardine can. A lot of people were just like so infuriated that we couldn't retaliate in some kind of way. People wanted to, they were out for blood. I was pissed, everyone was. We all wanted to go get something to get our revenge. And then next day is when we started the destruction of HKIA. Everyone was going out, destroying this airport, walking around with sledgehammers, just ruining everything. center of HKIA in front of the PAX terminal was this big circle of uh, flagpoles and during the during the operation like every country that was there had their flag up and then I walked by and the only flag that's left in the center is the US flag and it's at half mass so I take that picture because it, it really stuck with me because it's like we're the last ones here so yeah, that was the last picture I took we had we had pretty much stopped the non-combatant evacuation at that point. It was pretty much just a retrograde of military personnel. As we're loading up to leave, everyone's just kind of like, you know, I don't want to leave right now. Like, they just killed all of our friends. Why aren't we going back out and doing something? I, I didn't want to leave. I was pissed. It was the weirdest flight of my entire life. Like, the moment that you realize that, like, okay, you're finally leaving, you know, it's done. And then it's like, well, there's some people who their last memories on Earth are of that. You know, the last thing that they ever saw was this nastiness. To be honest how it feels, I don't want to fucking even acknowledge it. It, it guts me that it went down the way it did. I'm looking back on it a year later, it's still something that struggles with everybody. They just want to know how could something like that happen and everyone's just so pissed off at it. Looking back, still, that's still the thing. Like, I have a super special place in my heart for the rest of my life for Marines. It's just fucking what awesome people they were. Knowing the Marines that I had, that's what made my job so great. I couldn't ask for a better group of men that I got to be able to be with. It was just a privilege being able to be with some of those guys like Lance Corporal Z, Lance Corporal Jackson. It was just an absolute privilege. A lot of people don't think that my job is relevant. Just so grateful that I was able to capture a beautiful moment. One of the last pictures ever taken of Sergeant G was her holding a baby and doing something amazing that really shows what we and her and all, you know, everybody was out there doing and that her family gets to see that. 10 Marines, one Navy medic, one Army soldier, and one other service member killed. This is now the deadliest attack on US forces in Afghanistan in more than a decade. I'm just proud of them. 
down to individuals, you know, giving up water, trying to talk to people, you know, they, they had the opportunity to be complete stoic shitheads to everybody there, but they weren't. They were human beings and still doing their job and assuming a lot of risk in order to be human beings to the people trying to get out. And I don't think I can say enough times how fucking proud I am of, of all those those Marines, guys and gals at the gate.